Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Last week, I was at a conference in Australia talking to people about American politics. And something really strange happened. Some of the Australians I encountered knew more about U.S. politics than most Americans. We've seen Ron DeSantis sort of just trailing down ever since he launched his campaign in the last six weeks or so. We've seen Nikki Haley taking a little bit of that slump. I mean, the, the fact that they are taking $14 billion away from IRS enforcement means mm. the CBO, that's the budgeting office. It got really weird when I went on a popular Australian news show and one of the hosts started asking me about the internals of some state poll I'd never even heard of. Why the heck did these Australians know so much about what goes on in Iowa or at Trump's criminal trials or the potential effects of Cornell West and Bobby Kennedy making it onto the ballot? Why the hell are there so many American politics junkies in this country? Yes, the stakes are high in terms of Australia's foreign policy and America being our, our major strategic partner, if not economic partner. But it is also, you know, it is, they talk about uh, politics being, uh, you know, show business for, for ugly people. Well, it, it's just show business to us. American politics is show business. It's reality TV. It is so much bigger than everything that we have here. It turns out there are some good reasons for this obsession. When you dig into those reasons, you'll actually learn a lot about American politics. I love America. I love America so much. I sat down with Chaz Richardello. I made comedy shows for a number of years in Australia, quite successful comedy shows. And I had a personal interest in American politics. And John Barron. I'm much more journalist slash historian. So for me, the joys are the time travel you get from talking to somebody who ran for president in 1968 and to say, well, what was that like? The hosts of Planet America, a popular show on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's main news channel, that dissects American politics with the same obsessiveness as, well, Politico. John and Chaz have spent years studying America with the detachment that only foreigners can bring to the subject. They have some terrific insights into our system, including the one simple feature of Aussie politics that, if we adopted, could fix many of our biggest problems. Though it would probably make things a lot more boring. I'm Ryan Lizza. And this is Playbook Deep Dive. Thank you guys for doing this. Pleasure um, to be here. Loved doing the show the other day. I heard it was uh, the highest rated show that you've ever had. Extraordinary. I didn't know we were interviewing, being interviewed by Trump, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, all right. So the reason we're here today to start with mm. is first of all, to answer this question, why do you guys know so much about American politics. A little historical context will probably help your listeners, Ryan, because up until the Second World War, Australia was still very much a colonial outpost of the British Empire. Our relationship with the United States was more like, imagine the United States was the cool older brother or sister who left for college, uh, and we're about 20 years younger. We, we, we share a gene pool and parents, but you know we really didn't know you that well. We still relied very much. We're living at home with mum and dad. That's Great Britain in this analysis. Let's see how it goes. Then in 1942. Boy, that changed because this is the most American country I've ever been to. 
Right. <laughs> we <laughs> used to drink tea. We used to drink yeah. tea until the 1960s. We were a nation of tea drinkers and flag wavers. The, the, the King of England is still our head of state. But in 1942, uh, not that long after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese then attacked Singapore where the Royal Navy had its Pacific fleet. And when Singapore fell, it sent a very clear message to Australia that we could no longer rely on Britain to defend us. And mm. at that point, our then Prime Minister John Curtin famously said that Australia's na- eyes now turned to the United States as our great and powerful friend as our defender. Doug MacArthur moved out here and we have had American troops and bases, including some very top secret facilities in Australia to this day. And as a result of that, Australia is now dependent on the United States for our defence. America's cultural impact grew from the 1940s onwards so that when you're Chaz and my age, you you grew up watching as much American television as you did Australian or, or certainly British television. So we are both a product of our nation's dependency on the United States uh, and also just the sort of the, the soft power of American culture that we grew up with. All right, that explains the. All right, that, that explains some of the cultural imperialism, but it doesn't ex- explain the the nitty gritty obsession with American politics. Yeah. And, and you guys work for the very the most prestigious uh, network in, in Australia, the, the ABC. Um, and just briefly, maybe explain to our listeners who don't know what that is, what the comparison is. Like, like BBC is like PBS. Yeah, it's it's closer to the BBC than PBS. PBS is very much the uh, the ugly stepbrother of, uh, <laughs> of of public broadcasting compared to the ABC and, and BBC. Um, <laughs> it's it's the national channel. Now we've got other channels, obviously, but this is the national channel that goes out to the bush and etc. So the uh, it's it's a big channel. Um, not that we're on we're on the news channel, so it's a smaller part of the, of the national channel. There's mo- there's multiple national channels in Australia. I'll actually turn it back on you, which is not ask why we treat American politics as entertainment like we do. We do. It's like our our, our most popular sport, American politics. I'd say, why do you guys treat American politics like your most popular sport? Because it involves you. We got no yeah. skin in the game, so it's right. fun for us. Well, that's no, and, you, and that, that comes out a little bit in some of the coverage because <laughs> yes. you got you guys can be, you know, you guys can be a little less responsible yes. if, if you want because you're not broadcasting uh, to an audience that has to make, make any any decisions. Yeah, but um, I, I just to just finish off. I'd say that America has the most extreme of everything. This is why it's so fun. The yeah. smart guys are smarter. The dumb guys are way dumber. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just a lot more fun to watch because everyone's more extreme. So it's like a movie where you where you see the most extreme characters go up against each other. Is there okay? One thing I have learned though is that um, politics in Australia, despite Australia's uh, you know, reputation for for uh, oddity <laughs> in, in, in with with some of its cultural exports, politics here is incredibly stable and uh, boring. Yes, and the, the popular. Uh, explanation for that is compulsory voting. It's fascinating to me that it's not on the list of Amer- in America of all the reforms that are out there, and there are quite a few, um, compulsory vote- voting never never makes the list. You know, Ranked choice voting is a big deal. Campaign finance reform has, has been important for decades. Um, gerrymandering uh, uh, reform. But um, tell us a little bit about compulsory voting and how it affects Australian politics. 
It has a really interesting effect on on our, our politics broadly. I must say that technically it's not compulsory to vote in Australia. It's compulsory to register to vote and to attend a polling station on election day. So you can go in and say, yep, it's John Barron, yep, here's my address, here's, here's, the, here's the ballot paper. Then you can go, throw it in the bin and walk out. And plenty of people do that? Uh, not many. <laughs> but because once you're there, you may as well vote. Or you can spoil it. You can add a square and say Winston Churchill again. You can you know, scroll graffiti. People do. You can do all of <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. But essentially what it means is that uh, that people do enrol to vote. It is it is expected. Uh, and you will attend and, and, and vote for your the equivalent of your member of Congress. Australia's system of government, it's often referred to as Washminster. It's a hybrid of the Washington system and the Westminster system in the UK. We have a House of Representatives, we have a Senate, but our governments are formed in the House of Representatives. So the majority party in the House of Representatives uh, it forms the government of the day. All of the members of the cabinet, the defence minister or education secretary or whatever, they have to also be members of the House of Representatives. And effectively, so in our system, Mike Johnson is our prime minister. You know, right, the, right. the, the leader of the majority party in the House, House leads it. He's the prime minister. And so what does that mean for the Senate? It means that the Senate is more like the House of Lords in in the UK, although it is, it's a House of Review. Uh, legislation doesn't start there. It, it it can be modified, but it has to pass the the Senate. Uh, and you ha- you have more uh, proportional representation in the Senate, so you get more minor parties, Greens, left and right wing, sort of more extreme parties that form uh, coalitions. They're not part of the government, but they will side with a government of the day. When everyone votes, what does it mean for the types of governments that are elected? It means that the the sort of the gravitational pull, whereas in the United States it's like a centrifuge where everyone's flying away from the center because it's the as you know the primaries that are competitive in the United States, not the the House elections, and so the real contest is in the primary phase. So the left gets further left, and the right gets further right. Here in Australia, there is a draw towards the centre, that sensible centre, the people that are not particularly politically engaged, but they just happen to be in a marginal electorate. We have around about 150 seats in the House of Representatives that form that government, but there are some that are in rural areas, some that are in city areas, some are left-wing, some are right-wing, and then there's maybe 20 or 30, which are our equivalent of swing states, that they decide most elections, and and those are the people who are often voting based on their economic self-interest. So often our elections are almost like an audition between two accounting firms. Who's going to look after the economy better? We do look for leadership qualities in our prime ministers, but it's not a direct election for them. We're electing our local representative who then votes for their party leader to become prime minister. I, I would just add to that. Yeah, the key aspect about compulsory voting is that while Australia has has our our partisans, just like America has their partisans, I'd say we have fewer than America. I'd say rather than say twenty five to thirty percent of hardcore partisans, it's more like fifteen to twenty percent on each side. While we got them, we've got the elections decided by the fifty percent who don't give us stuff. Who are who basically just have pure apathy. Now America has has those people as well. They don't vote in America. They just don't vote, yeah. 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 Whereas in Australia, yeah. they're forced to vote. And what that means is they outnumber the partisans by a mile. And so what that means is elections essentially are trying not to annoy <laughs> those middle people because they don't pay attention. Yeah. There's no point having a permanent campaign in Australia because the people you're appealing to aren't paying attention. All you can do is annoy them. Is it true that that prevents um, – that's a sort of uh, check against ext- an extremist government on either side being able to be come into power? It, it is. I think so. And it also means that uh, a lot of issues that are central to American politics, such as 
uh, access to abortion. Not an issue in Australia. We do not know or care what our Prime Minister, our opposition leader, thinks about abortion. We, most Australians could not name the justices of the, the Australia's equivalent of the Supreme Court, the High Court of Australia. They are technically appointed uh, because, uh, by the government of the day. So you can see them as partisans, but they're not. They're, you know, we, we don't think of the sort of the uh, we don't think of the ideological makeup of our High Court. So as a result of not having to pay lots of money to advertise to people who otherwise wouldn't bother to vote, and not having to spend a lot of money ginning up uh, social issues, divisive issues, gun control, crime, abortion, we we don't have to get that angry to get people to vote. They just they just have to they vote, have to, they, they so they do it. And as a result, so many issues that are best, what we would say, best dealt with by, I don't know, a doctor or a police person, not 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 uh, not kind of the the uh, the easily inflamed members of the general public. Those issues stay with the experts and people. Yeah, they get to have their say on these things, but it's not whipped up into this constant frenzy of how incredibly important it is, and the stakes couldn't be higher. The stakes couldn't be lower in this country most of the time. <laughs> it's true. And can, I, can I tell you the what I think is the number one reason for why America, Australian politics is so different to American politics? And I'll, it'll tell you something about America as well. This, so here's a teaser for you, and that is, I think that. The Australian character, for whatever reason, it might be related to compulsory voting, it might be related to something else, has just generally more apathy and pragmatism than this, the American character. And what that means is this, that when there is a controversial issue in America, let's take Obamacare, for instance. I'll yeah. tell you what, with, with Obamacare, that was very controversial. So for the next 10 years, literally the next 10 years, the opposition to Obamacare was saying, we need to end this, we need to end this, we need to end this. There were what, 10 years worth of Supreme Court cases, try, trying out the margins, the yeah. boundaries to try and chip it away. In Australia, when it passes by an election, that's it. It's done. There, I can only think of two times in the last 30 years when there was an issue which went beyond one election. Uh, the one was the carbon tax and one was our illegal immigration issue. And both of them only survived one more election when it was flipped. Then people said, no, no, we're not going there. And the reason why is because of the – because – Australians don't like are generally apathetic towards politics, and the more you push them on an issue, just the angrier they get, and so that and so you don't want to push them. Libertarian, you know, you, yeah. you know the libertarian case comp against compulsory voting. We would we most people in America, when you throw this out, they would say, My, "I have a right not to vote." Totally, this is what I'm saying. This is what Americans do. They go straight to the to the and boundary, I, right? I am an Australian libertarian, right, and I happen to to not like to vote. And I'll tell you what happens when you don't vote because I often don't vote. Right? Uh, what happens Why is, aren't you in jail? Well, this is the thing. <laughs> this is the thing. This is the difference between Australia and America. In, in America, you probably would go to jail because they, they've, they've prosecuted the black and white of the extremes in as, hard, in, in as definitive a way as possible. In Australia, there's this big gray area. People trying to not escalate. Right. Whereas in America, they yeah. always try to escalate. And knock on the door with yeah. the big weapons. Yeah, it's a different attitude. And, uh, and look – I love America. I love America so much. Well, I know I can tell. Yeah, can, but, it comes across from your from the show. But Australia is a more relaxed place to live for that reason. So, just to close out this conversation about compulsory voting, yeah. the number of people who take the the Chaz method of mm -hmm. not doing anything at all is what oh, you know. It, it, our, our participation rate is in the low nineties. Mm -hmm. uh, part of that is just as economists will say, four percent unemployment is kind of. Zero, effectively. Yeah, there right. are people that, for whatever reason, are not able to work, can't work, whatever. They've got health or mental health issues, whatever. Uh, the same is with, with, with voting. And, and if you, there have been some prosecutions in the past where 
uh, certain individuals campaigned against compulsory voting and they had rallies against compulsory voting and they made a big swinging deal and drew a lot of attention to themselves more so than Chaz, who I now discover after a decade of being on SBS <laughs> yeah, is show, a fugitive from justice. I would feel really bad if this ends with your prosecution. <laughs> would you though? <laughs> would you really? I'm not well. sure. So, so yeah, it, it's, it, it, isn't, it, isn't a, it isn't a carol stick thing. It, it really is just, you know, this is, this is a part of the social contract. We're not going to lecture and hector you. It's not, the, the stakes are not that high. But it's we make it easy to vote. Watching yeah. Sky News here at night has been a revelation in terms of uh, you know, Sky, of, Sky News at night is the closest thing we've got to a Fox type show. In fact, they're probably more extreme than Fox News, to be honest. That's that was my that was yeah. definitely my takeaway. In, having in said that, each night, yeah, they have ratings of about thirty to forty thousand people. That's it. Yeah, wow. <laughs> they are really, oh, so really, are really low tiny. Rating. Yeah. yeah. And, well, all right. So the population of Australia is what 31, 21? It's about twenty six million, twenty seven million. It's been like a while that. since I counted them, but okay. it's <laughs> mid twenty. It's twenty six. Okay, even even given that population, those yeah. are pathetic numbers. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. like like to, just to compare, uh, your an average high rating TV show in Australia would get maybe five hundred or six hundred thousand. Because they are to the on, on Sky News, they are to the right of what you see on a, on Fox News, at least in my uh, yeah, they are. my s- small sample. The conversation the other night was, you know, someone at a uh, pro-Palestinian uh, 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 rally said something, you know, uh, outrageous, and the the panel was discussing how you could strip this person of their Australian citizenship. So mm-hmm. even on Fox News, that conversation, and I would expect even on Newsback, someone on a panel like that of right wingers would talk about free speech. Whereas even the, you know, your libertarian friends in the United States would very unlikely. Their their first resort would be like, all right, strip this person of the of citizenship and send them to Gitmo. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> going um, to the extremes. And so, so <laughs> in talking and having conversations about this, some people have said, well, that gets to a big difference between the U.S. and Australia, which is um, individual the primacy of individual rights in the U.S. versus more of a collective mentality in Australia. Well, how, true, say, how true is that? I was going to say that they, that Australia just has no sense of individual rights in the way that America does. Like we talk yeah. about free speech. We do not have free speech. So as a libertarian, does that make you a little bit of an outlier? I'm an extremist when it comes to free speech. I love free speech so much. But in Australia, it just doesn't exist. Like we practice like it does exist. We all assume it that it exists in a way, but legally it does not. And the classic example of that, which Americans would just it would just blow their mind is we have no sense that advertising is speech at all. Mm. The government just bans political advertising for large portions of the time. Like the like three days before the election, you are not allowed to advertise in Australia and no one cares. It's called the blackout. No yeah. one cares. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of rules about advertising because it's not considered speech. Whereas in, a, in America, that's considered the highest level of free speech, advertising. And yeah. like John said, that means you don't need as much money because there's not as much advertising. Are there prohibitions against political speech that is, you know, is false or that, that kind of thing? The, the, Australia's defamation laws uh, coming from the, sort of the British tradition of, of, of slander and so on, quite – Quite. It's more like the UK in terms of the def- defamation law. Yeah. Not and, quite as far, but it's close to the UK. But you yeah. don't have, like in the US, there are, broadcasters won't run something mm. if it's if it crosses certain boundaries, right? And that doesn't violate, uh, general doesn't violate the First Amendment because it's a, a private entity making their own editorial decisions. Mm. Um, and there, there can be some... Sometimes the First Amendment can be implicated, implicated there uh, because... Uh, the airwaves are uh, parceled out by by the government. So broadcasters historically have had certain uh, res- responsibilities, l- less and less now. So usually you can say, Trump campaign, we're not running this. That's just absolutely false. 
is there something like a, an election watchdog or anything that yeah. is watching these ads? And They're saying, advertising you can't standards. Do that? Yeah. Uh, the Federal Electoral Commission also oversees his complaints. So if a particular candidate puts out a whether it's a, a billboard on a highway or a, or a broadcast advertisement, they can say, "Well, this is this is untrue. This should not be broadcast." This billboard's got to come down. Yeah. It doesn't happen that often. It tends to happen on the fringes. It's very rare that it happens between the major two parties. There's also a media watchdog that regulates broadcast television. Uh, now, now that it's very once again very few and far between are the cases that actually go all the way. Yeah. And when they do, it's just a fine in the end, and not a big. But fine. Not that different than our FCC then. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 in the in the, in the same ballpark and with yeah. the, with the same kind of legislative results. So yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean the main the main censorship with regards to that is just that you were found guilty and that's it. And that, yeah. and that's like yeah, a that's one it. day story and then you move on. <laughs> yeah. So, but I was going to say with regards to uh, once again the the pr- the main reason why you wouldn't run something extreme on Australian broadcast television is because of the pragmatism and apathy I described. People wouldn't watch it. <laughs> so, so, yeah. and, and, and this filters through to everything. Take yeah. abortion, for example. I reckon most people in Australia would not even know what the law is when it comes to abortion. They'd have no idea. And it's just and and when you actually look at the laws in Australia, a lot of them, the states, each state has its own laws, but a lot of states have significantly more conservative laws than exist in most of America. Like some of the states, they're not like you know, they're not like uh, heartbeat bills, they're not like six-week bills, but some of the states have like 16-week. 16-week abortion laws, I believe. Um, like they've really – but but the, there's exceptions. There's huge exceptions. Yeah. Health of the mother exceptions. Talk to a doctor exceptions. All those kinds of things. So in the end, anyone can get an abortion if they want an abortion. If you don't push it to an extreme level, which in America someone is always going to do, in Australia they don't. Or if they do, people ignore it or don't care. I have a question about two issues that continue to royal American politics that in in our conversation the other day, um, you both were discussing how they've been settled here in in Australia. And I think it would be useful for our listeners to to know a little bit about that history. One is immigration and the other is gun control. And Chaz, the other day you you said to me, like, you know, watching American politics, Mm. watching you guys debate immigration, you're like 10 years behind where we are. I see where this is going. Yeah. So tell us about the history of Australians dealing with immigration and how you think it might affect uh, the American debate or uh, what you think is the future. Yeah, there are a few uh, key differences between illegal immigration in Australia and America. We don't have 11 million illegal immigrants running around our country. They, we, we, are, uh, we have a moat surrounding us. So they get intercepted. They, they, we call them boat people in Australia. They yeah. come by boat from Indonesia. Well, originally from other countries, but they come through the inter- Indonesian archipelago through boat and they get the, intercepted. It's a dangerous trip, but it's makeable, right? Well, with yeah. these sort of shanty boats, and uh, and the and the and they get intercepted. Every one of them gets intercepted by the navy unless they capsize, and that and that was an issue. Once again, you'll recognise this. <laughs> Back about twenty five years ago, this came to a head where there was a wave of what we called the boat people. Not nearly the kinds of numbers that America has, even even per capita. Yeah. Um. They, where they, at the absolute peak in two thousand one, there were what 40,000 boat people in that particular year. Um. But Australians just flipped out. It became it, it, that drove the news. People, the boat people were something that 
average Australians were like worried about. It, yeah, it, it, was, confl- this, it was conflated yes. with the war on terror. So just as you see yeah, now on yeah. the southern border and this idea that, well, Hamas uh, broke through those those fences into Israel yeah. in, in 2003, 2004, uh, the Afghan war, Australia also committed troops to the Afghan war and Iraq alongside the United States. And there was this concern that amongst these asylum seekers, uh, there will be, and there were many Iranians and Afghans amongst them, there will be terrorists that want to come here, uh, coming down and, and taking this big empty continent. Was there a big us. difference between the left and the right on, on how they Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll explain, I'll yeah. answer that question, but uh, answer that in a second. But let me just say there were four arguments used at the time in the 90s. See if you recognize these arguments. Number one, they might be terrorists. Number two, they're from a different culture that doesn't appreciate our, our free ways and they're going to change the country. Number three, it's dangerous. They're going to die. We're saving them from themselves because when they take this journey, they get they get murdered and raped and all the rest of it. Like, see if you recognize that argument. And fourthly, um, uh, they're queue jumpers. We welcome immigration. We just don't want these queue jumpers coming in and replacing uh, and getting in the way of the other ones coming in. That's all. Yeah. What became of that? How did you, how did this debate get settled? Because yeah. you're saying okay. it's oh, not yeah, yes. anymore central yeah. to Australian the, the politics. The left versus the right. Now the left's oh. the left's point of view was that uh, we should let them in and we should process them, and then we should and then if they they don't um, if they don't qualify for for asylum seeking, then you then then you send them somewhere else, but or send them back or whatever. But you process them and then you let them through and then what happened was um the conservatives won that particular election and they and they uh tamped down on on the they tried to they, i don't want to go into legal technicalities but they tried to exclude the australian mainland from the australian migration zone in order to mean that you don't get to australia if you get to Australia, in a way, huh. yeah. <laughs> it, was just, it was very strange legally. They tried to they, they 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 basically tried the same kinds of tricks that Trump Trump has been trying uh, legal tricks to to basically invalidate the asylum laws in Australia in the same way as America is now trying to invalidate the asylum laws in America. At least at least Trump is right. Got it. Yeah. Um. And then the 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 left got back in, and then they tried to reverse it, and they they let them come back in again, and then there was another wave. And then the, the left said, oh, God, oh, no, 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 we're going to lose another election because of this. So then they just stopped it. And what they did was they ended up um, – this is another thing which America is flirting with right now. They eventually ended up having what they call offshore processing, mm-hmm. which is the remain in Mexico, which was we process them in a country that's not Australia, near Australia. If they qualify, they come to Australia. If they don't qualify, well, they're, they're not in Australia. We don't care what happens to them. We're going to send them home or send them somewhere else, but they're not coming to Australia. And that is – to this day, the law in Australia. So, and so what I would say in terms of where this is going to go, I promise you from having this painful debate in Australia for 25 years that – and you'll see, this in, you'll see this in New York right now. It, when there is a constant flow of illegal immigration, the left become conservative real fast. They really do. Like whatever they say, when the flow is on, they end up becoming like conservatives. And so the best thing you can do – is come up with the most humane system you possibly can come up with to stop the flow, whatever it is. Yeah. And then when the pressure's down, then you can make the conditions better and you can play with the yeah, laws. Yeah, that's sort of been Biden's instinct. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that, that is where that America I think the countervailing force on that is the, the progressive side of the Democratic Party is pushing very, very hard against those instincts, which a lot of Democratic leaders have. But once again, that's the difference between Australia and America. In, exactly. a, in, a, in exactly. Australia, people just drop it. Whereas yeah. in America, you yeah. know they're going to keep on pushing and pushing and pushing because of their ideology, which once again, I love. I love that they care. Yeah. I love that it matters. I love that they don't throw up their hands <laughs> and go, oh, well, who gives us stuff? Everything's okay as long as I'm all right. 
I love that people care in America, but just it makes it harder to solve problems. But basically, what you're saying is that the right won the the argument here, and the and the left basically um, ad- adopted a, a version of uh, of the, the the right's policy yes. and became bipartisan. Yes. John, do you want anything? Yeah, only to say that I guess the the left would say we we echo the policies of the right as a deterrent, so that people don't make those perilous journeys. We have these harsh laws, so we never have to use it's them. Framed as a more humanitarian yeah. response. Yeah. The only two differences I would say between our two countries in this respect, which is worth mentioning, is first of all, like I said, they weren't running around in Australia; they were in detention centres, and that was part of the issue. Like like America, we, one of the issues was it took seven years for them to go through the legal process because there was so and in many the meantime, them, they're locked up. They're locked up. That was no. the difference. They were locked up in Australia the whole time. Whereas in America, they yeah. were free. They were, they were free in the country, right? Um, and the other thing is in Australia, there wasn't some business community desperate to exploit them, right? They, as an Australian who follows this, I just it blows my mind that e-verify is not. Is not mandatory. National. It's not mandatory. Natural. Yeah. It just seems so obvious. You just go well if you don't if you want to control the yeah. illegal population, then then don't let people hire them. That's really yeah. that's simple because they're not coming. Yeah. They're not all terrorists. Not coming to, to destroy a country. They're coming for a job. Yeah. So when you take away the job, well, obviously there would be less of them. It would help you control the numbers in Australia. There absolutely would never have been people hiring illegal immigrants. Or well, so it and, yeah. to solve. and as you know, some of the most anti-immigration. Uh, Members of Congress represent states where they absolutely um, would be thrown out of office uh, if they uh, if they mandated e-verify and every small uh, farm and big agribusiness suddenly had to had to had to use that system. So there's a big conflict there. John on guns. Mm. All right, another another issue that just sort of has like evaporated from the Australian political fights. Um, Give us a brief history of what happened there. Australia in many ways has had a a population mix similar to the United States, but the the big difference is we didn't have the history of of slavery. We didn't then have the history of Jim Crow, the the civil rights era, and then the, so the the civil strife of the late 1960s in America, which, as you know, was really when the NRA started to gain in its power and the reasons for getting guns beyond, well, my family always go hunting uh, or we need, a, we need a firearm to maintain the livestock and our property. But the idea that you want to have a, a pistol in the nightstand and, and a rifle in the basement. That really began in the United States in the 1960s. Never happened here in this country. We don't have the same racial tensions. You look at the, 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 the surveys in the United States and say, why do you have a gun? To protect myself and my family. Well, that's, that is alien to Australians. Mm. And we don't that's, have the same crime rates. We don't have the same crime rates. Mm. We trust our police to come if there's you – know, so as a result, we, you know, we, we, we're not in a situation where we have more weapons than people in our country. Uh, but it's like a lot of countries around the world. We have guns, but they're owned responsibly they're, and, and people don't tend to use them either against others in their community or worse. As you know, in the United States, there are more – gun suicides than homicides. Yeah. Uh, we don't have people ending their own lives in a moment of desperation with a firearm in, in this country. We have had mass shootings in the 1990s. There were a series of them leading up to what was then the worst, deadliest mass shooting anywhere in the world. It happened just a couple of weeks after the Dunblane massacre at the school in Scotland. The perpetrator of this attack at Port Arthur in Tasmania, a, an old penal settlement uh, in a beautiful idyllic part of, of, of the island state of Tasmania, he, he shot up 
sightseers and tourists uh, in a cafe there. And his first question to the police when they arrested him was, did I get the record? Mm. That taught us a couple of things. One, about letting high-powered weapons into the hands of disturbed people. Uh, and also, for, for those of us in the media, the, the risk we run by, by uh, glorifying, even naming the yeah. perpetrators of, of some of these attacks. So we've, we've learned a lot since then. But the then Conservative government, uh, to their credit, John Howard, the then Prime Minister, he took on conservative elements, rural elements within his own conservative side of politics to say, we're going to get rid of semi-automatic weapons. The government is going to buy them and then destroy them. And it was very successful. Um, there hasn't been a massacre of that scale since then, there are now believed to be as many automa- semi-automatic weapons in Australia as there were back then. Mm. But uh, but we're, we've got a better healthcare system. If people are going off the rails, they tend to get treatment. It's not nearly as expensive to see a doctor to get psychiatric assistance in this country. That's a big part of it, as is the, the racial issue, the law and order issue. There's a number of reasons why we don't have the same problems you do. No but- restrictions, though. It didn't become a restrictionist. There was no restrictionist part of this new uh, – the. Uh, law. You got to get a license, yeah. and you have to have some kind of educational course when you get a gun, and you have to store it properly. And but yeah, you can want a gun, you can get a gun. Yeah, you got to jump through some hoops, right? The and once again, in Australia, people just accept that. In America, they would not accept that. They would go, yeah, you know, you can pry out of my cold dead hand. And like yeah. they, they, they push the boundary case. Um, another difference between Australia and America, which makes it easier in Australia, is that we're a more urban society. Like if America was 80 percent major cities, I'm sure you'd have stronger gun legislation. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. um, so yeah. that's, a, that's a, a big difference. And so once again, politically, they, the, the, the conservatives could afford to ignore the rural areas. Right, because it's a small percentage, whereas our rural constituencies, obviously in the Senate, have an out uh, – they they're overrepresented. Totally. So, but when this happened, when the, when the poor after the massacre happened that John described, it's just classic Australia where people just go – uh, okay, we're going to do something now. What are we going to do? And and the, yeah. and, the, and the government just goes, right, you're going to do this. And they just roll over everyone's rights and just go, this is how it's <laughs> going to be. And Australians go, sure. Australians yeah. are a much more pliant people than Americans we are. We have a higher level of trust yeah. in government. That's yeah. something yeah. that we yeah. saw in this country during the coronavirus pandemic. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. All right, so this conversation about Australian politics has just um, made me realize that what you two do and what, what my initial um, inclination here about the obsession with American politics is because it is so much crazier and more, <laughs> more interesting. So, so um, Planet America. Yeah. Um, I, find, I mean, I am blown away by the level of junkiness of <laughs> of that of that show this show if it were if, if it were broadcast in the states i mean i know people can get it online um you know it would be popular with with political junkies so 
what's the, how did you guys start this and what, um, how did you become such junkies and what's the level of interest among the, the general Australian population for this stuff? Okay. I am a comedian. Right? Yeah. That's my actual career. <laughs> I was, I was a, 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 not even a political comedian, just a comedian for, for yeah. I made comedy shows for a number of years in Australia, quite successful comedy shows. And I was just had a personal interest in American politics. Well, this is a good time to, to point out you, you very probably the most famous, um, political stunt you pulled mm. was the time you dressed up as Osama bin Laden at the Apex Summit. Do you want to briefly remind yeah. listeners about yeah. that? I'm sure people, a lot of people will remember that now that I've said it. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we had a, an Apex Summit in Australia, in Sydney, which was you know, very high security, obviously. This was in 2007. Yeah, and, and you could only do this in Australia, where the entire city of Sydney was, they had what they called the Ring of Steel, which was just, just security stuff everywhere. You just couldn't walk around the city at all. And so, of course... We, we had this comedy show at the time, which was a stunt-based comedy show, and, then, and people were, were asking us, what are you going to do at APEC? Because it was just such an obvious target for us. And, of course, the thing you're going to do is try and get in because it, just, it seemed like an impregnable fortress yeah. to try and get in there. And so – George W. Bush is there. George W. Bush is there. And so we thought, of course, it's a comedy show, so we're trying to get in in the funniest possible way. And so what we did was we posed as a Canadian motorcade like we just had, we just hired a limo, put a Canadian flag at the end, at the end of it, had guys running alongside with earpieces like JFK, like, like the Mocave and JFK. Um, and we just tried to drive straight through. And like we didn't lie or anything. We just try, thought if we just stopped at the checkpoint and just said nothing, they just let us through. And they did. <laughs> they just let us through. And, and we got all the way. We could have we gone and shook George W. Bush's hand if we wanted to. They waved us right through, right next to his hotel. We could have gotten out and walked into the hotel. But we, but we knew every step we got closer to George W. Bush was another year of jail. So, <laughs> so we thought when we, when we basically got through all the security, we said, okay, we need to stop this now. And we've made our point. And the joke was, I was dressed as Osama bin Laden, right? <laughs> and so I got out and I was doing this, t- this extremely offensive accent as Osama bin Laden talking about all the places I was going to bomb. And, and just the and then the police came and they knew exactly who we were immediately. They recognised you. Yeah, yeah. We were, yeah. This, is, this is the most, uh, most popular Australian TV show at the time. They knew who I was. And they, they really tiredly, they just took, oh, fine. <laughs> and we ended up spending a little bit of time in jail. But it, was, it, was a, it was a huge front page story in Australia that we got through. So that, that was the joke there yeah amazing but that, that's what i used to do and while i was doing this i was just i've always loved america i've always been into american news and i was obsessing with it i was just telling my my colleagues about this american about american politics all the time and they just said you really need an outlet for this mate and uh, there's something wrong with you and um and john uh john was a friend of one of my colleagues julian who was who was on this show and he introduced the two of us together and we, we took it from there do you want to you take the rest of it the yeah, that's pretty much as I remember it. I, you know, it, my, I grew up in in the post Watergate, post Vietnam War era, and in Australia in the early nineteen eighties, we looked to the United States, and and you know, we this is the time of, of the highest level of Cold War anxieties in this country. Uh, it was the you know the morning after it was on TV and so on, and we looked at you know in the White House you had Ronald Reagan, a guy we knew as a B grade movie actor, uh, made movies with chimpanzees, and he's got his 
doddering hand over the nuclear football. Australia knew it was a target then because of the joint defence facilities at Northwest Cape, Narunga and Pine Gap. So we knew that Australia was one of the first to go if one of these ageing Soviet leaders who were you know, dying on a, a monthly basis in the early 80s, uh, if if somebody truly crazy came along. So there was this awareness. The you realised that American politics ma- actually mattered to you personally. Exactly. <laughs> and this is, I guess, an extension of the point I was trying to make at, at the outset. Decisions made in Washington, D.C. determine whether Australian men and women die. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Australia, because the ANZUS Treaty that binds Australia and the United States is not like NATO. There is no mutual defence guarantee. The United States is only required to consult with Australia if we're invaded. Since 1952, when ANZUS was signed, every time the United States has gone to war, it doesn't matter, Vietnam, Korea, it doesn't matter. We're like, we're coming too, we're coming too. And as a result, Australia has really been bending over backwards because we need the American nuclear umbrella. We need the defence guarantee that is not there on paper. So in the 1980s, there was this sense of, okay, uh, Australia is is sort of on the front line of a potential nuclear conflagration, Ronald Reagan's president. So this, to me, was fascinating. Uh, and, you know, you think of the 1984 uh, Democratic primary field. You had a space hero in John Glenn. You had Jesse Jackson. You had a Kennedy-esque figure in Gary Hart. You had McGovern running again. You had Fritz Mondale. It was an interesting election. And none of them got within Cooey of Reagan, you know, yeah, despite yeah. despite his his you know his failing powers in 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 eighty four. So that's that's really when I got enraptured by American politics. And fifteen years later, I'm a journalist, and I'm suddenly I'm covering Bush v. Gore and and, and Kerry v. Bush uh, and, in the states or from here. Uh, yeah, b- yeah, both, yeah. both. And then in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, I was commissioned to write a, a book about the history of, of campaign politics in the United States back to the McGovern Fraser Commission. So I was I was in South Dakota interviewing George McGovern, talking to him about compulsory voting, trying to sell him on the idea of compulsory <laughs> voting. He wouldn't he wouldn't have a bar of it. And nobody I told on that trip about compulsory voting. You should really do this. So as a result of doing all of those kinds of things, it became a, a passion and a professional specialty. And then when, when a mutual friend said, look, Chaz is spending 16 hours a day reading American politics blogs. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> what's, your, the, what's your media diet of, uh, of American uh, politics coverage? I, I, I literally read about 400 articles a day. I have a, I have a blog 400 reader. 400 articles. 400 articles a day. I have a blog reader with, with stuff. With these RSS? Yeah, yeah. Stuff, I know. The it's interesting old, old how RSS has come back. I love, I've always loved RSS. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, from right across the spectrum. Or like, uh, like all I care about, I don't care what your political ideology is. I care about whether you're a good faith uh, correspondent or not. Which sites and journalists do you really rely on and love in American politics? Like, it, it, it would, I mean, I can, I can isolate a couple of you like, but honestly, I would – I I I, ha- I, f- I read the best part of eighty publications, but the but the answer to your question, if I was going to name a couple off the top of my head, I mean, I, I, I said I'm a libertarian, so reason I quite like, you know, yeah, like this, yeah. for instance, and, and once again, they're they're good faith writers, like yeah, they're not going to yeah. lie to you, you know, yeah. like I don't care if I if it, I want you to disagree with me, yeah, I just want you to not lie to me when you know, I see a quote in your article. I want to know it's a real quote yeah. and I check it just in case. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just going to, if I could just pick up on, uh, go into slightly more detail rather than giving you, in, I mean, give you more publications if you want, but the, but the, a key aspect of our show, which I just want to just focus on for a second. And then if you want to go on to that, we can is um, I was just before Planet America. I was also making a, 
a, a satirical show about the news called The Hamster Wheel, which is what I, I, I at the time I thought the news was like. <laughs> the, uh, and uh, this was our Sounds comedy like team. writing playbook. Yeah, yes. Our comedy team is back in 2011. And at that point in time, we were basically – we were watching literally every bit of news coverage on television. Like I, I was logging, logging you know, 16, 17 hours a day, double speed to, to see all this news and, and we were savagely beating the hell out of it. Like it was about for being biased and for being garbage, for being sensationalist and stupid and dumb, and like all the things that you associate with you know, mainstream media, et cetera. Um, and we were just mocking it. We're like, you know, John Stewart, whatever, except for just on steroids, right? Yeah. Um, and after a while, it sort of occurred to me, this is when I was like, I was at this point in time, I was like 32. And it occurred to me, I just had this revelation at one moment that I was older, better educated and better resourced than every journalist I was beating the hell out of. They're all 24-year-old cadets who had, to, who had to pump out 12 stories a day. They had no idea what they were talking about. They were going, here, you're now an expert on crime. Tell us about crime. <laughs> and like, and they, had, they had commercial issues like of trying to try and make it profit-driven. People, ratings going through the floor. TV was dying even then and now it's even worse. I, 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 it's like, I suddenly had this realisation that the thing they were most scared of was me. And uh, I thought rather than you just savaging people who – no human being could succeed in the environment that they are in. Yeah. Why don't you try and work out a way of making it better? Like why don't you actually use your power and your, and, and, and your influence to actually try and create a better news show? And so the and so the whole idea of Planet America. So, so whatever happened to that? <laughs> I failed dismally. So, so the whole idea of Planet America was thought, okay, let's pick up topic which I am passionate about like i'm already obsessed about this topic i'm a specialist in this topic because yeah. i've spent the last 15 years reading incessantly about it right yeah and i am just going to work like a dog just reading as much as i possibly can and i'm going to try and use my comedy skills to make it not not make it a joke show make it a serious news show but just a show that people can understand because i use the skills of comedy writing to make it more accessible and just so i'm clear the show abides by the standards of a new show hmm. Yeah, right. totally. It's, it's, not, like, it's not like the Daily Show. No, 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 care. no. It's not a comedy show. Yeah, and it's and yeah, and and so I I I very much intentionally was going. Okay, let's let's use these skills to try and make and let's see if we can make it popular. Let's see if we can make it rate well. So that that way I can show rather than criticizing journalists all the time, I can say, look here, you could do what I do, and then that would be a better news service. What's something that you guys see in American politics that you mock quite a bit or you think is very funny? that American journalists tend to be a little bit more precious about? Because usually, and one of the great things, uh, one of the things I love about uh, traveling and watching foreign foreigners cover American politics is they don't have the same, uh, uh, they don't have the same issues and hangups uh, about some, some of the candidates. Um, for instance, the way this, you know, this, this exists on American television, but I was, I was a little surprised by the brutality of Sky News mm -hmm. and the way that they mock Biden's age in the most sort of vicious ways that even like an SNL or, you know, other, other comedy shows won't do because there are certain things that, you know, that, that are a little too hot to touch. I, I do find that the pageantry of American politics kind of ridiculous. I, I like the fact that you, that you call the, you call the president, Mr. President for a start. And they, and, and you'll call them that even after they've finished their term, which is just extraordinary. Like honestly, in Australia, we call the prime minister Albo. <laughs> we literally do. Like if, he's, if he was interviewed, if you're in a one, press conference, that's what you call. If, if, he, if he was interviewed on TV, that, that like not maybe not by the ABC because they have professional standards. But if he turned up on the commercial TV, they absolutely would call him Albo. 
Absolutely. If he's on like yeah. a morning show or something, yeah, 100%. And you just yeah. like to see Albo at a pub in Marrickville where his home electorate is. So, you know, we don't have the same sort of, you know, yeah, there's low-level security, but, you know, we, we, we don't tend to have political assassinations in this country yeah. either. So <laughs> these are just people we know, you know, uh, people yeah. that in, in some cases – we went to school with or university with, you know, it, it's almost like a big country town in that sense. Yes, we're, yeah. you know, we're, we're a, a medium-sized economy. There's not as much awe about yeah. it. Yeah. All, sure. all yeah. the hail yeah. of the chief, the, the flag pins, the flags. We just don't put Australian flags everywhere in Australia <laughs> like Americans do. Partly because like, there's a British flag in the corner of our flag. It's, still, <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing. Yeah, yeah like it's, Australia, Australians definitely are not into the, uh, well, what the, what you would call the patriotic thing. We would call the nationalistic thing. <laughs> which, is, which is great as a journalist because, you know, you go somewhere like the Iowa State Fair in the presidential, you know, the run up to the to the, the caucuses there and, you know, you, you're like a, a kid in a candy store. You can go, G'day Joe, Joe Biden. <laughs> G'day Joe, yeah, just yeah. John Barron maybe. And we're, we're, we're sort of losing that. We're, yeah, we're yeah, losing absolutely. the early primary uh, up-close thing, especially yeah, now. But, but, but the access that you do get – there is still you know it is still greater than you get elsewhere obviously diluting now that Ira and New Hampshire you know kind of on the democratic side going to have a, a bigger role to play but you certainly get, you know being able to go and sort of dabble with and play with american politics in that way is is tremendous fun for us because at the end of the day yes the stakes are high in terms of australia's foreign policy and america being our, our major strategic partner if not economic partner but it is also you know it is they talk about uh, politics being uh, you know show business for, for ugly people. Well, it, it's just show business to us. American politics is show business. It's reality TV. It is It is so much bigger than everything that we have here. And I would, I would also say the religion thing, I already mentioned that, but just to emphasize that Australians have a lot of trouble understanding the reverence Americans have for religion in general. Because it's say. a more, because it's a, it's a more, it's not as a religious society. Yeah, yeah. Even general. even the religion that exists in Australia. I mean, like, the, look, there aren't there are some you know, right uh, the uh, religious right in Australia. There are some, but generally speaking, the religions in Australia are far less aggressive and political than they are in America. We, as well. we have about twelve yeah. percent of Australians who attend church regularly, so it's, yeah. it's still around fifty percent in the United States. It's come down in the in the last yeah. generation or two, but. Uh, Australians, you know, typically we had a we had a sectarian divide between between Protestants and Catholics that used to play out politically until the nineteen sixties, but it really dissipated after that, and that had a lot to do with sort of you know, the Irish English tensions and so on. So you, it's it, it is a very different place. What's your who's your favorite American politician that each of you for this question for each of you that you've interviewed? I'd go back to for me, whereas Chaz often puts a lot of his analysis through the prism of, of data. He's, he's very much a data journalist, even though he thinks of himself as a comedian. He looks at things differently through different sources, but also just looking at the facts and having a, a brain that understands the facts. I'm much more journalist slash historian. So yeah. for me, the, the the joys are the time travel you get from talking to somebody who ran for president in 1968. And to say, yeah. well, what was that like? Yeah. So making programs as I have in books that I've written about the, you know, the convention riot in Chicago in 68, uh, what it was like for the people who were there when Bobby Kennedy was shot, uh, those kinds of things. And they inform what we do now. So if we're, if we're thinking about how, uh, a, a challenger like Dean Phillips or, or, a, or a third party candidate like Cornell West or, or Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is going to play into this campaign, it's worth looking back to 1968 and saying, well, this is what happened when 
when Eugene McCarthy did better than expected in New Hampshire. Here's a process that you know, history doesn't repeat, but it echoes. We can understand it through those terms. For, for me, I like John said, I prefer data. And so I, I like talking to academics who have lots of data. So my favourite interview was a guy called Mark Kleiman, who's a who's who's a expert on marijuana and crime, and he he was very very informative. He really changed my views about that with just the data he presented. I was, I was very impressed. But my favourite, to answer your question, my favourite politician I interviewed, generally I don't like the blowhard so much. I kind of, we've interviewed Ro Khanna a few times. I like him because he talks policy. Ro Khanna. Yeah. I Ro like Khanna. policy. <laughs> <laughs> He's, uh, he gets around. He loves talking he, to us because when he, he talks talking to the, yeah, well, he loves talking to the media. I, I yeah. like Ro Khanna. I don't, I don't well, want to say. I was going to say, when he talks but, to us, all we talk asking about is policy. And he, I think he likes that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that, all right. So do you see the show as a reality show, pure entertainment, where it's sort of at the end of the day, who really cares what happens to these people far, you know, far off in the United States? And it's just like watching a, uh, an absurdist uh, reality program. I'm sure it swings back and forth between these extremes. Or um, is the approach strictly journalistic? And at the end of the day, who who uh, leads the United States and the issues that you cover are as important for or, or Australians as they are, um, or at least very important for Australians, maybe not as important as they are for Americans, and uh, approach it that way. Because, you know, the vibe, the Planet America vibe suggests a little bit of the former. Yeah. Uh, in my experience, it's, it's a little bit more of the, the, the latter in the conversation we have. But is it easy to sort of just um, go off into the, none of this matters, this is like covering uh, a different planet? To me, since this is, for me, a news project, as in trying to make a news show that I think is an example to other news shows, I don't talk about anything unless I can explain why you should care, the viewer. And I think that's what news should do all the time. Yeah. If you can't explain why people should care, then don't talk about that story. Talk about something else. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so, I so I do care very much about what I'm talking about, and I and I hope our viewers do care, and that, and I try and convince them to care. If they if even if they didn't when they came in, I think that you just need a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. That's what we do. So I want them to care, but I want them to be interested. That's why I'm coming from John. Yeah, it's simple as uh, what just happened, what's happening, why does it matter? Yeah. But because we're predominantly broadcasting to an Australian or outside of American audience, uh, we have to do a little bit more explaining. It's just in the scripting. We explain, you know, we don't just say, well, you know, here's a poll out of Iowa, but here's a poll out of Iowa, which is the crucial first state in the in the primary process, and here's why this matters, and here's why Ann Seltzer is worth listening to, etc. There's a little bit more explanation required. But interestingly, when we have guests on from the United States or people see the show online in the United States, a lot of people say, you know, gee, I wish our media would actually take that little step back don't assume so much knowledge. Don't assume that right, everyone's right. Uh, inside the Beltway uh, obsessive. Explain it a little bit more. And then, of course, for our audience, yes, it matters because of the, the political and the military intermeshing between the countries. America is also often either a source of inspiration, if it's a historic candidacy like an Obama, for some Hillary Clinton, people saw that as being this is this is the this is our civilization turning a page. This is us moving forward into potentially positive areas, or not, as as the case may be. Uh, but there's also a cautionary tale. So when we see somebody like Donald Trump and the effect that Donald Trump had on politicians here, the fact that we had politicians who said, "Hey, you can lie." 
there's no accountability. You know, back in the days of Mitt Romney to say something. And that happened here. That changed things. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, gaffes used to be the worst thing you could possibly do. You know, Romney and Biden have have found that out, that it's it's a real encumbrance. If you have no shame, if you just keep charging on and don't admit a mistake, or if you just fabricate. So there's been a Trump effect on the parties here in Australia. There has. There yeah, has. has. Uh, but definitely. as we've also discovered in the United States, Trump can do it. People that try and ape Trump don't really get away with it to near the same extent. So maybe maybe it is an isolated phenomenon. We're not quite sure about that yet. But it is, you know, just as our media echoes your media, our politics to an extent echoes yours, whether it's around elevating certain candidates with a sort of Obama-like personality campaign or somebody like Trump as well. I always think of Trumpism as a virus that that highlights the weaknesses in the system. Mm. It, it, it seems to just it seems to just uh, filter through the system and just highlight every single weakness. And it's done that, that may- in a big way in America, but it's doing it in Australia as well. No, I mean, that makes sense because his whole thing is to push the boundaries yeah. into, into to test things as he's doing now with the justice system yeah. or with the gag order, right? Yeah. It's always to yeah. push, 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 see how far he, yeah. he can go. And as a little aside, um, I, I, I should just say that the, this, the, the problem for, I think, for America, from an analysis point of view, the problem America faces is that it could, could be good to highlight all the weaknesses in the system. Well, it, I was it, just going to make a joke about that. But well, yeah. well, it could be so, good. So Trump's been – so this has been a good test. Well, as I say, it could be good if you could legislate to remove those weaknesses. But the problem with America is it's so – the system's so sclerotic that even when the weaknesses are highlighted, you can't change them quickly. Yeah. And, so, and so if you had the – if you had a little bit of Australia in, in America there where you could just go bang, 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 bang and make some quick changes, that would be a positive. But unfortunately, that's not the well, way Well, last question then, which would make your jobs less fun, but maybe make American politics better. What's the, if you could pick one of the of the, of the defects that we have in the, in the United States um, and, and change it to something closer to what Australia, ha- Australia has, what would it be? Okay, I, I, I personally think compulsory voting. Yeah, yeah I, I'd agree, compulsory voting, but there are steps on that on the way to get there, including uh, making it easier to register to, to vote, uh, better informing the, the populace as well. So there, there are intermediate steps before people will say that compulsory voting is a good idea, but once you get it, once you take the hot-button social issues and all the special interest money out of politics because you don't have to get people riled up and angry enough to vote – then suddenly, you, well, you, you end up with a, a fairly boring political landscape and uh, you, you'll find in America you'll start reporting on Italian elections because <laughs> they're much well, more Well, there was that moment. It has happened. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much. This was an excellent conversation. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. And uh, I think our listeners are going to love this. Thanks. Thanks for inviting us onto the podcast after I made a big thing of saying how it was one of my favorite podcasts, the, the, uh, the political See, uh, deep dive That's all you have to do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just wish you'd never listened to it. I, I wish I'd said I like your watch. You might have given me that. <laughs> Thank you, guys. All right. That was great. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Thank you to Victoria Cooper and the United States Study Center for production assistance. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. Email me at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.